I want you to imagine a higher up demon. Now, I know that's like the most horrible way to start a sermon imaginable. We're supposed to reflect and think about Christ, not demons. Um, so let me perhaps reword that. Uh, I want you to imagine a, a higher up demon, a letter he's writing to a newbie demon. And yes, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've read or know about C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, uh, that book, I am unabashedly stealing that idea for just a minute now in our service. So we're going to call the, the younger demon Sniper, that's his name, and here's how the letter goes. My dear Sniper, I hear that you've been assigned to John Smith at Desert Springs Church. I want you to focus on two things. First, there are times when he will see others uh, in pain or carrying loads. And you know what I mean by loads. I mean spiritual or emotional loads, not physical loads. Do not allow him to think that reaching out will be of any help. Don't even let him think about offering a helping hand to someone carrying a load. Let's say that he sees that some children need a teacher in Sunday school. Put these other thoughts in his mind, like, I'm not qualified to teach kids. Or, you know, it's October now, and I kind of missed the start of the whole Sunday school year. It must correspond with the academic year, which means September, so I'll wait till next year to start out and offer some help. The reason we want to avoid John doing this, helping to carry other people's loads, is that that leads to humility, and that leads to unity, and we don't want that in the church. Second, do not allow John to grow in truth. Help him to think about Christianity only as a mystery and never something that he can actually apply his mind to and think about it. We do not want John using his mind. Remember, their motto is truth first, feelings second. Our motto is the opposite, feelings first. So we want you to catch John feeling emotions like, like frustration, bitterness, anger, lust, arrogance, pride. Let him think about those things. Let him feel those first and how he solves those from what's inside of him. And as long as he's doing emotions first, he can think all he wants second. So goal number two, minimize John's exposure to truth. Sniper, keep these two goals in mind. Uh, along with some of the tools I mentioned in my letter last week, and you'll be off and running to your next rank promotion. So end of letter, end of imaginary setting. Uh, but I want you to keep some of those ideas in mind as we look at Ephesians. Open up your Bibles, if you've got one, to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have one, uh, they'll come up on the screen, the verses that we will look at. Our topic today is discipleship, like Ryan mentioned. Uh, Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 are my favorite chapters about discipleship, and Ephesians is my favorite New Testament book. So am I excited and happy about subbing in today? Yes, by all means, yes. What is a disciple? Let's do a quick definition of that. A disciple is three things. A, someone who learns. So a disciple is a student. Uh, but not just a student. Like, let's say that I'm a student of history and I love history. Uh, we wouldn't say I'm a disciple of history. So B, 
A disciple models him or herself after a person. A, a student, a learner. B, something more specific, a certain kind of learner, uh, someone who models him or herself after a person. So to use an example outside of Christ, what if I, yes, loved history, but, oh man, I'm obsessed with Abraham Lincoln. I love his character qualities. I love his leadership traits. I want to be like Abraham Lincoln. I want to be Abraham Lincoln, you know, in my family and in my culture. Well, now I'm a disciple of Abraham Lincoln. And then finally, see, a disciple has a passion to tell others about the truth he studies, that's A, and the person he's trying to model his or her life after, that's B. So in this C part, I like Abraham Lincoln so much that if we're conversing, we're having coffee, and you mention history in any century or context, I'm going to say, hey, I didn't know you liked history a little bit. Have you ever read about Abraham Lincoln? I've got a biography that is very well written. You're going to love it. It is not dry history, very applicable to life. I'll even bring it to you. You don't have to buy it. Just say the word, and I'll share Abraham Lincoln with you. The noun disciple occurs a lot in the Gospels and the book of Acts. It does not occur once after the book of Acts, nor does any kind of general noun-like discipleship. That might lead us to believe that after the book of Acts, the New Testament does not talk about discipleship. If we thought that, we'd be completely wrong. Many books talk about discipleship, Ephesians just being one of them. Here's what's happening, though. Uh, if you were to ask me about my relationship with Carla, my wife, well, first of all, I could talk for five hours, but I could certainly talk for 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, until I could tell them, oh, okay, you're getting bored and maybe 10 minutes is the max here. But I'm talking completely about our relationship, but never using the word marriage. And it, that's what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about our marriage. I'm just not using the term. So keep in mind, it's very likely that somebody like Paul could talk about a topic for verses or even chapters, but not use a certain word that we use as a church to associate with that as a topic. So uh, we're going to look at Ephesians, and this will start into your sermon outline if you like taking notes. There's a word picture in the book of Ephesians for discipleship, and that is the word walk. So what's a word picture for discipleship in Ephesians? The word walk. Paul pictures Christianity and specifically discipleship as a walk that we're on. Sometimes it's a pilgrim's progress, if you've read that book. Sometimes it is a soldier's march, which means it's hard. Sometimes it is a pleasant stroll through some great scenery conversing with a good friend. So a walk can be many things. But it is a journey. And in Ephesians 4 and 5, Paul's going to talk about this walk. He'll close that in Ephesians 6 verse 10 with the word finally. And when he hits finally, he's on to one last word, picture of a soldier, and then some closing thoughts. So our text is really those two chapters, 4 and 5. We've got four sections in those chapters that are all based on the word walk. So let me show you the first one, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read that verse for you. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to, here's our word, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that's our first point. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Uh, what's our calling? We're called to Christ. 
Uh, we don't have time to look at chapters one and two, but there's so much in chapter one, and even that word calling specifically mentioned. We are called to Christ. But that urging of Paul in verse one is a little bit general, isn't it? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Man, what does that mean kind of more specifically? Well, let's look at verses two and three. And we're gonna get some specific words here. What does that kind of walk mean? Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let me pause there for a minute and then I'll read verse three in a a few seconds. Those words one another, you might have a translation that has each other. Uh, Those are going to occur at least five times in these two chapters. We call these the one another's of the New Testament. Uh, Phrases like edify one another, encourage one another, serve one another, forgive one another, confess your sins to one another. Uh, There's so many of these in Paul's writings and they all have to do with discipleship. But here's our first one. Bearing with one another in love, verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we'll look for those words one another elsewhere in our passage, but they almost always refer to the church, and certainly they do here. Chapter three, Paul talked about the church before these verses and in these verses after this. This is all about the church. So what's Paul's first thought after he gives the command, walk in a manner worthy of your calling? His first thought is unity. And to get there, he's given us these three specific words. Humble, patient, gentle. We carry loads for each other. We go through trials with each other in love. Uh, We had two, we called them worship and vision nights in the last 30 days to kind of kick off this fall of thinking and praying about generosity, about ministry goals, and about building renovations, all of those things uh, together. And we asked you guys in the foyer to fill out a card, each person. Uh, Give us one spiritually significant moment you've had here at DSC. You might have had five, 10, a dozen. Uh, But think of one, just take a few sentences and write it out. Here are a couple that have to do with carrying burdens for one another. Seeing somebody else carry a burden and this person steps in uh, and God does something really neat in their life through that. So here's what one person wrote. Uh, Here's my spiritually significant moment. Serving on the meal team for Vacation Bible School was one of the most significant moments God has given me at DSC. I was new to the church and didn't know a lot of people. But the women serving were very welcoming and I felt instantly at home. It was a moment in which the presence of the Holy Spirit worked to calm my heart, one that will stick with me for years to come. Uh, here's another one. Uh, so I think this is one of the one or two that I, I'll, I'll let the name stand because uh, it's one of our pastors that is now with the Lord but was so great at doing this thing of carrying burdens for other people. Here's what one person wrote. Terry Ash picked me up downtown at a very low time in my life when I thought nobody knew where I was. That's when I knew Desert Springs was my church family. Man, that's good stuff. I could read these things all day. So, what is Paul's first thought when he talks about how we should walk? His first thought is that we walk with others in a church. That's the first thing he talks about when we look at this idea of discipleship as a walk. 
How about some applications? One application is that if possible, it's ideal, and that's the word we like using as elders, it's ideal if we can all worship together in one service. I know that the tendency in our country right now is more the opposite. If you're growing even a little bit, man, you've got two services, let's go to three. If you've got three services, let's try to go to four. If you meet on Sunday, let's try to go on Saturday to give more options, kind of buffet style. Give people more and more options. But I think if we read Ephesians 4 and 5 carefully, one thing we'll come across is a repeated phrase, we are members of one body. We should have an inclination in the other direction. If possible, to get to one service where we're all one body together. Not two bodies, not three, not four. Ryan mentioned last week, uh, in the near future, next few weeks, we'll put something up on this next webpage um, that will be a, kind of a list of uh, scriptural reasons for one service, then some practical reasons, and then probably some Q&A on questions you guys have had. Uh, practically, how's this gonna work if we just have one service and we're all together in one worship service? So I'll be looking for that and we'll announce it in the coming Sundays. So we're ready for our next section now. It's also introduced by the word walk. It's found in verse 17 of chapter four. So here's our next uh, sermon point. Do not walk as the Gentiles. Let me read the verse for you, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Uh, how do they walk? In the futility of their minds. Now by Gentiles here we mean Greeks and Romans. They've bought into the philosophy of their day, but they're clueless on who the God of the universe is and who God the Son, Jesus, is. Now let's look at those verses again, well, verse 17 again, and let's add verse 18 to it. Now what I'd like to do is emphasize some different words. So instead of emphasizing with my voice the word walk, let me kind of read through that quick and emphasize some other words and my idea here is that if you had a printed copy, I'd encourage you after circling or highlighting the words walk in Ephesians 4 and 5, here's another cluster of words for this particular section. Why? Because they're going to help us define what walk is here or what it means to not walk as the Gentiles walk. So uh, Ephesians 17, let me read it again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, I'd circle or highlight that word right there. They are darkened in their understanding. There's the second word I'd circle. Why? Because mind, understanding, those go together. Alienated from the life of God because of their, because of the ignorance, I'd circle that word. Because mind, understanding, ignorance, ignorance is the lack of knowledge, that goes with those that is in them due to their hardness of heart. I'd probably even circle hardness of heart uh, because uh, in the Hebrew mindset, you thought with your heart. Um, that's where thinking occurs and a hard heart would be closed-minded. You're not open to what others can teach you. Now let's combine that with some other words later in this same passage that's headed by do not walk as the Gentiles do. Skip up to verse 20. Let me start reading there. That is not the way you learned Christ. Here I'd circle the verb learned. 
why that goes along with those other ones, right? Mind, understanding. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, I'd circle the verb taught, uh, as the truth, I'd circle that word truth, is in Jesus. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your, man, here's another word to circle, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away, here's another word, falsehood. That's the opposite of truth, right? Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth. There's the final word I'm gonna highlight. With his neighbor, for we are members of one another. How do we seek out truth? With each other, interacting with each other. That's a big part of what we're gonna say discipleship is. So lots of words that have to do with truth. Now we've got a lot in this passage on morality as well. We're not going to read all the verses, but if you look at this section, you would see things about purity or impurity. You'd see uh, verses about stealing versus honesty. You would see verses about corruption, meaning what comes out of our mouths that is corrupt, versus what can come out of our mouths that gives grace to other people. So there's a lot about morality here. However, because of all those words we circled, here's the relation. The morality is sourced in truth. It flows out of our pursuit of truth. It is sourced in our thinking. So let's cycle back to the first verse. What does it mean to not walk as the Gentiles walk? We don't walk in ignorance. We don't walk in darkness. Where sinful thinking leads to sinful emotions, and sinful emotions leads to sinful actions. It all starts with thinking. Rather, we walk in the truth, and we seek to be renewed by the truth. No wonder that in the Great Commission, Christ's last words to his disciples, Matthew 28, under that header of make disciples, one of the three key elements is teaching teaching truth. So how do we apply this? One application would be that we continue to grow in what it means to study God's word here at DSC. So what does a culture of study 2.0 look like? We're certainly at one. Maybe we're at two or three and we're talking about 4.0, but wherever we're at, what's the next level of studying God's word? Because we can always grow in that. And you know that by study, I don't mean quizzes or exams or red markings of a professor on a paper, reading God's word, understanding it, meditating on it, sharing it with others. Well, one way is that we can develop more seminars and classes uh, and conferences. Uh, in other words, more venues for learning in group settings. If the idea of one body of many members is let's all come together and worship in one service, for preaching, singing, then there's a great counterbalance to that, and that is there's nothing wrong with a variety of venues and smaller groups, which we already do in community groups. So nothing wrong with classes in marriage or parenting or Bible or theology or counseling that are five or 10 or 15 or 30 or 40, and everything right about that. They work together so well. 
Let me read to you some more cards. So again, these are cards you guys filled out. And the topic here is going to be classes or conferences, how they help in this uh, process of discipleship. So here's what one person said. I took a course here on the attributes of God. I learned a lot. I learned how it applies outside of academic discussions. Man, isn't that great? It's because they're saying, I learned Bible, learned the attributes of God. But what I learned, if I can put words in this guy's mouth, what I learned affected my emotions and my decisions and everyday life. That is a blessing for any minister or teacher to hear, if that's what somebody's walking away with from a class. Here's another one. Mine is easy. I was, uh, here's his spiritually significant moment. Mine is easy. I was young in my faith and seeking to learn more about the Bible. I happened to attend a Claris, our annual theological conference, and I thought, wow, this is what I need. I started attending regularly and was baptized at DSC. I have since seen my dad baptized here as well. And I'm telling you, Ryan and I could read these all day long, all week long. Uh, here's a final one. I work in a very dark, broken, hurting environment which wears on my heart. After a particularly heavy day, I showed up for Clara's for that first Friday session. D.A. Carson was speaking, and after only a few minutes in, there was this deep peace that surpassed all understanding. I had this thought of the church is a safe place. That moment of grace was so powerful, it's such a joy to sit in the presence of God. So one of our ministry goals is more classes, more classes like, as I said before, the marriage class, the parenting class, counseling training classes, classes in Bible and theology. And we'll structure this so that there's a separate Sunday school hour. So there's one hour where there's nothing happening in here unless there's some really big Sunday school class, uh, but everything that's happening out there. So an, an hour for children's Sunday school, full ages, for youth, for young adults, and for us as adults, three or four classes as options. Or if you don't want to learn and grow in discipling that way, we'll soon see that you also grow in discipling by serving others. You could teach kids or youth or help on the safety team or the hospitality team. A covered over courtyard, the picture that we saw earlier is gonna fit perfectly with those ministry goals. More foyer space and more classroom space. And that'll help us to walk not as the Gentiles walk, which means that we walk positively by learning more truth. Here's the third instance of walk. So now we're going to be up at Ephesians 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk, there's our word again, in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So our third point is walk in love for others. Now, I told you that a disciple is A, somebody who learns, but B, somebody who models him or herself after a person. And for us, of course, that is Christ. So Paul is saying here, imitate Christ. Uh, but in what way? There are probably a few dozen ways in which we should imitate Christ. 
but which way is he talking about here? Well, sacrificing oneself for others. We don't do that by dying on the cross, of course. That's already been done. Now, if left up to our own imaginations, I think we could, we could come up with something. Here's what I think we would come up with if we didn't have verses that followed this. Okay, sacrifice ourselves for others. What might that mean? Uh, somebody's sick, and I'm going to bring him a meal. Or somebody's hurting, I'm going to come up and empathize with them, listen to them, pat them on the back, give them a hug, because that's sacrificing my time for others. And those are good and godly things that I just mentioned, things that we should be doing. Is that what Paul is talking about in the verses that follow this? Actually not. So uh, look with me, maybe just skim over the next few verses, verses three and four. Um, Those verses talk about impurity of thought and speech. Man, what does that have to do with loving others? And Paul is saying this impurity is in the church. He's not talking about the world out there. He is saying that it exists in some people in the church. Well, Paul not just talks about impurity, but he talks about another area. And this second area is exposing works of darkness to the light. And here's where I'll read some verses for you. Skip down to verse 8. Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, you church, uh, the church at Ephesus, but now you are light, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern, here's where I would circle a key verb, discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Here's a second and final word that I would circle in this passage. Discern and expose. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. Here is, I think, our connection between the negative stuff in these verses and that header of loving others sacrificially. In this passage, we're supposed to look for darkness in ourselves and we're supposed to look for it in others, meaning in brothers and sisters in Christ. The easy road would be not to say anything, right? In fact, the world tells us, don't judge. Don't ever judge anybody else. That would be the easy road, to say nothing. Or to have conversations that are always warm and fuzzy. Like, how can I encourage you and bless you uh, and never confront people about what you see is what might be darkness in their lives? It's a much greater sacrifice to go to people, uh, maybe even in the foyer after the service, and not seek out the friends that uh, you love hanging out with. Their lives are kind of together, and, and you can smile and pat them on the back and wish them a great day, but maybe to seek out people that you know are hurting or struggling in some measure that may need both encouragement and on some level some confrontation or challenging on your part. How can we apply this part of Ephesians 4 and 5. Well, love here means holding people accountable, not just encouraging. And it means having gospel conversations. Gospel conversations are such a key part of discipleship. Uh, In a little bit, we'll see Paul mention specifically just one aspect of what we're calling gospel conversations. More on that in a minute. Doing book studies is great. Doing classes is great. 
But along with those, we can't do those and not ignore gospel conversations. Speaking the truth in love, that is a key phrase that occurs two times in Ephesians 4 and 5. Such a great way of wording it. Speaking the truth in love, both together. Here are two more cards uh, that you guys filled out, and these have to do with accountability. These really fit into this part of Ephesians 4 and 5. Um, this idea of speaking truth into the lives of one another and not just the warm and fuzzy things. One of the things that made me fall in love with DSC was experiencing the process of church discipline. Who would open a card that way, man? That's <laughs> but as I read more, they don't mean the hardest final part of church discipline. They mean the accountability. So let me read on in the card. Uh, it's so refreshing to be a part of a body that lives out accountability as the Bible describes and that doesn't take advantage of God's grace. <sighs> so well worded. Uh, here's one more about accountability, or maybe two more. Uh, this person's significant moment. Monthly, one-on-one -on -one encouragement with the church leader. Uh, actually, this person is not staff, by the way, but still a leader in church. Monthly, one-on-one -on -one, uh, engagement with the church leader who would answer questions about career, biblical leadership, the sovereignty of God, and everything in between. I love that ending. <laughs> and everything else. Uh, comes up in that gospel conversation that occurs monthly. Uh, one more. When I first joined a community group with my wife, I met a man who asked me what would become an altering chapter in my walk with the Lord. He asked me, has anyone taught you how to read scripture? No one had ever done so, to which he responded, would you like to learn? For the next three years, he diligently discipled me and it has served as a marking moment in my walk with the Lord. A moment I will forever thank the Lord in community at DSC for. So here's another guy that's having at least a once a month great gospel, gospel conversation uh, with someone else. The new atrium or foyer that we're building is going to be great. More than great. Perfect for gospel conversations. We hope they'll happen by hundreds and even thousands every year. Can you have a gospel conversation out there right now after this service? Well, yes, but dot, dot, dot. Uh, it's very crowded. It's kind of noisy. I'm a person that doesn't like crowds and noise. So I'm actually not going to do this idea of speaking the truth in love and confronting some people, even though I'd love to use Sunday morning to do that, if someone's standing three feet away from me. I'll either say, can we go outside or... Let's, let's shoot for coffee later this week. But how wonderful if there was something over twice the size of that foyer with little places I can even turn around the corner and sit down at a table and get a little bit away from everybody else. Then I'm okay. Then I'm going to have many more gospel conversations than I do right now. Here's a little running definition of a gospel conversation for you. What it is not, it is not saying how are things going. And then you talk about, I don't know, kids, upcoming vacations, work. That's not a gospel conversation. Here's what I would propose. A gospel conversation has two out of three things. Here are the three things. Uh, one, the name of Jesus. Or maybe a synonym like the Lord, but I'd even say not a generic term like God. But Christ's name somewhere in that conversation comes up. We hear his name as a curse word often enough 
in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, and family reunions, right? Why can't that name come up as a name that we honor and glorify in our conversation? Second, a Bible verse. So you're either reading the Bible or hopefully you've memorized some verses or parts of verses, and that can come up in the conversation. Three, prayer. Pray for the person. Uh, let me tell you what a friend of mine does, and I'm trying to do this more myself. It's so cool when he does this. Talking to this guy, and he will not say something like, Ron, let's pray. He does not close his eyes. He does not bow his head. He does not fold his hands. He just starts into it. <laughs> like, he doesn't even ask my permission or say, is it okay? We'll be talking, and he'll just say, Father, please help Ron with this struggle. Help him to be strong for Carla and his daughter, Danielle. Please give him strength this week. And then he's done. But it's a regular part of his conversation. And it's such a blessing to have somebody pray for you like that in conversation. So wonderful to have both kinds of prayer, formal prayers that we do here corporately, and then conversational prayers. All right, ready for our fourth and final instance of walk. It's going to be in Ephesians 5, halfway into the chapter, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So let me start doing that word circling thing again. Uh, maybe I'd highlight walk in a different color because I've searched for that in two chapters. But now I'm going to use another color, or maybe we'll call it circling for wise. So that word wise at the end of verse 15, I'm circling. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish. I would circle that word. That's the opposite of wise. But understand, I'd circle understand, because that goes along with wisdom, what the will, I would circle that word, of the Lord is. So for our fourth point, we're going to say walk as those who are wise. Wisdom is clearly set forth as the topic in this section, not just by those words I just pointed out, but by others. And it ended, those verses, with the will of the Lord. For will, I want you to think of two words, plan and action. So what does God want us to do? That's the plan part, and are we actually doing it? There's a will of God for our lives, and we'll see in a few verses for specific relationships. So that word will goes along great with words like wisdom. Why? Because wisdom, especially in the Hebrew mindset, is something very practical. It's not PhDs, it's not IQ, it's not any kind of college degrees. It's not head knowledge of just facts. Um, but rather, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is knowing what wise and godly relationships are, how to encourage and grow godly relationships in your life, and how to promote those in the lives of others. Now, there's a whole lot about unity in Ephesians 4 and 5. In and out, both chapters, things like these one and others that I pointed out before. So let me read a little bit in this last section, Walk as Those Who Are Wise, that focuses on unity. Look with me at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. Let me pause there for a few seconds before we read the rest of it. That word addressing in, in other translations is talking to one another. It's a very common Greek verb, and it just is used the same way we would use the verb talk. So get what Paul is saying here. 
we take verses from, that we sing from the Psalms and hymns, praise choruses, choruses that, are, that are rich in theology, and we talk them. We talk them with one another. They're a part of gospel conversations. Wouldn't that be great if in addition to verses or, or phrases from verses, you actually memorized some of the things we sang this morning? Didn't that have to be whole verses and choruses, like word for word, a whole song, just phrases. And you use those to encourage others and challenge them in your conversation. So let's read on. Uh, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, but Paul also says, singing them too, of course singing them. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there were two times that phrase one another occurred in those verses I just read. Again, this continues the thought that's been there the whole time in the second half of the book of Ephesians. We should be discipling each other, one another. Ephesians 4 and 5 pictures the whole church doing this. Not just one-on-one, what we call mentoring. Uh, and not just classes, but we do that in conversations, and we really do discipling, not just in conversations, but classes, but here right now. If a disciple is one who learns and then learns to be like Christ, then when Ryan preaches to us, he is discipling us. Is he talking with us three feet away? Well, no, but he is helping us to learn and be discipled. When Drew and the musicians lead us in songs, they're discipling us. They're helping us to learn truth and helping us to apply truth to our affections and our lives. So all of those are important. They all work together. Coming together as one body, being in smaller groups, conversing one-on-one. So, The last section or the last part of this fourth section deals with relationships. We're not going to go into detail in this at all. But I want to point out something that I think is really significant. Here are the three, just to give them rubrics or headers. At the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Paul will talk about the specific relationship of a husband and wife. What does it mean to walk as those who are wise in marriage? Then he'll he'll hit a next relationship. What does it mean to walk as one who is wise? in parenting children. And then he'll hit a third and final relationship. What does it mean to walk as somebody who is wise in the workplace? Employees or servants versus their bosses. Here's what I want you to take away from this last part. Application-wise, we want to deepen resources for these three specific relationships here at DSC. Like I said before, more classes in marriage, parenting, Bible relating to uh, the workplace. And classes of different kinds that we've not tried before. Uh, This January, we're going to start what the counseling department is going to call freedom groups. So freedom groups are smaller groups where you're either uh, facing an addiction or you're just struggling with something. So the first one is going to be called grief share, and it's for people that have lost someone they have loved. Now, is that a sin? No, of course not. So that's not the addiction part of things. That's more the just sharing through a struggle and hearing from people that have gone through that uh, with the Lord's help and what they've gleaned uh, 
and walking through that dark time with the Lord and trusting in him. So more classes like that, again, uh, a renovated foyer with extra classroom space is going to be perfect for both formal classes and informal. Hey, let's just get together and, and study the Bible just as one time this coming Friday evening, that kind of a thing. Here's the bigger thing I want you to walk away with. There is an order to what Paul presents throughout the book of Ephesians. And I think it's so critical to see this as we read through it. Here's that order. Chapter one, I know we didn't look at that, God the Father soon transitions into God the Son and salvation, uh, how we have sins forgiven. It's through Christ and only Christ. It's through nothing we can do. It's only through his work on the cross. What does that produce? Not just forgiven individuals, but a church. So chapter three, first half, Paul talks about the church. Now we're at chapter four. That first three chapters, that was more doctrinal, more truth. Chapter four transitions into the second half of the book, and that's more practical. A lot of commands, a lot of do's and don'ts. Like we saw, walk this way. That gets commanded four different times. So let me run through chapters four, five, six briefly. What did we see? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Patience, humility, serving each other. Well, that has to do with the church. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Seek truth and let your mind be renewed by truth. Well, that's done in a church setting. The walk serving others, not so much the warm and fuzzy stuff of bringing meals and patting them on the back and empathizing, although that's all good and godly and can be found in other parts of the New Testament. Uh, Help people be accountable for the darkness that still stays inside of them. Love them in that way, not just in the bringing meals when they're sick way. Once you've got those three kinds of walk down, which is discipling in a church setting, now you're ready for the relationships to hear what Paul says about marriage or parenting or the workplace. Don't skip ahead to that as part of the point here. So say you're offering some counsel to a young couple that's newly married or about to be married. Don't just take them to the end of Ephesians 5 and say, hey, here's your role, husband. Here's your role, wife. What you should be doing is saying, hey, start at Ephesians 4, verse 1. Because if your marriage is not hooked into a church, deeply connected into a body of believers, then these roles aren't going to mean very much. And maybe you even take them back further and you start at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and you say, hey, some of this stuff you might think you know about God and Christ, but it's always worth a great review. Let's start with God and then work to the church and then end up on your marriage. Don't skip to the marriage and go directly there. That marriage has a foundation in the church and that church has a foundation in Jesus. Pray with me, please. Father, we're so thankful for the order, the priority that you inspired Paul to write to not just the church at Ephesus, but to us this exact day and this exact hour. This is what our ears need to hear. This is what our minds need to respond to. So I pray that you would help us reflect 
on what it means to walk in unity, loving one another, receiving truth, and speaking truth to one another. Thank you that all of this is founded in the head of the church, which is our great and glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.